0: Now turn, uh, with me, please, to Nehemiah chapter 10. If you're using one of the church Bibles, uh, you'll find this on page four, nine, five. Uh, just by way of introduction, uh, as you're looking up that passage, uh, Nehemiah eight, nine, and ten, uh, run together. They're part of a whole. Uh, and in Nehemiah chapter 8, we discovered something of what was in effect a spiritual awakening. Uh, A considerable transformation uh, took place among God's people in uh, Jerusalem. And uh, we described that last week as really the fulfillment of uh, Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones that he was called to address. Uh, for the effect of the preached word of God and the power of his spirit turned dead bones into a living mighty army. And in reality, this is what had happened in Nehemiah chapter Eight. Uh, and such was the transformation that took place that at the end of that chapter, uh, we read that the people hadn't celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacle with such joyful obedience since the days of Joshua, almost a thousand years. Quite a remarkable fact. And then in chapter 9, we described that as a preparatory service. This uh, renewed people want to re-consecrate their lives to God. And so in chapter 9, uh, we build up towards that re-consecration. There is a preparatory service. And prior to the great prayer that is made there, uh, the Levites encourage the people to stand up and bless the Lord. Uh, and in the course of that prayer, two things become apparent. One is the, the pattern of takeoff and crashes that marked Israel's history as they, they walk through uh, the history of redemption since their deliverance from Egypt up to the present day. But along with that, side by side with that, There is the pattern of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. And we saw that where sin abounded, grace did much more uh, abound. And so at the conclusion of that prayer, and this is where they're heading, but worship came first. At the conclusion of that prayer, they are eager to reconsecrate uh, their lives to God and we take up uh, the reading at the end of chapter 9 verse 38 after the prayer in view of all this we are making a binding agreement putting it in writing and our leaders our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And then for the next twenty-seven verses, there is a long list of names, and your homework for next week is to read that passage uh, for yourselves. If you've difficulty with the pronunciation, we have a resident Hebrew scholar in Will Trobe. I'm sure he would happily help you with that. So we pick up the reading uh, in verse 28 of chapter 10. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, Together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their brothers and nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath's new moon festivals and appointed feasts for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year, a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons And of our cattle, of our herds and our flocks, to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God. To the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God. Well then, the Declaration of Arbroath is without doubt uh, the most famous uh, document in Scottish history. Uh, Like the American Declaration of Independence, it is seen by many to be the founding document of the Scottish nation. It was drafted in uh, 1320. And it bears the seals of many Scottish barons. Their seals gave weight to the document, making clear that people of note were fully behind the text of the declaration. There is my seal. I agree with everything that is written there. Almost 2,000 years earlier, another document was signed and sealed a document of far greater significance, not least because unlike the declaration of our Broth, its recipient wasn't a human pope whose support for national independence was sought, but the Lord of glory and the document acknowledged a desire on his people's part. To live in dependence upon Him and in obedience to Him, recognizing His right to rule over them. I want to make three general observations uh, about uh, the, the renewing of the covenant before looking at uh, the four specific promises uh, that are made. And if you're getting a little bit worried as we get towards the fourth, which is very, very lengthy, let me assure you we're just diving into it a tiny, tiny little bit. But general observations, first of all, this uh, document was made against the background of Israel's herpaling history. Last week, we noted that since entering the promised land, Israel's spiritual life had followed a discernible takeoff crash landing pattern. And that was a pattern they no longer wanted to be characteristic of their lives. Having been called out of cemetery existence by God. And with new life breathed into them. They wanted by an act of re-consecration to demonstrate a desire to pursue a quite different trajectory. John Calvin writes, Histories are a true school for learning how to order our lives. Let me read that again. Histories are a true school for learning how to order our lives. A failure to learn from the past can lock us into the same take-off, crash-landing pattern that marked Israel's life. How many Christians have I heard bemoaning their repeated crash-landings? I've been there before and before and before and before. I don't want to live my life like that. Secondly, notice the binding nature of their renewed covenant. It's expressed first in chapter 9 and verse uh, 38. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement. Uh, And then uh, more uh, particularly in 10 and 29, uh, we read, All these now join their brothers and nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. Uh, We really need to see uh, how uh, those words pick up on the words spoken by God to their forefathers just prior to entering the promised land in Deuteronomy 11:26, following we read, God is saying, See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. Blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today. The curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn away uh, from the way that I command you today by following other gods. So here are people who are taking upon themselves the binding nature of this covenant. They are not saying, let's play covenants. Uh, uh, it's the latest thing. Uh, you know, there's always a latest thing in the church. Let's play covenants. Uh, far uh, from that. This is no game. It's not something that is entered in upon lightly or unadvisedly. And so their words express the binding and the serious nature of the promise they are about to make. I wonder if you're familiar with the saying, vows made in storms are often forgotten in calms. Uh, how many people do we know who've cried, God God, get me out of this mess and I promise you that I'll do this and this and this and this? vows made in the storms, forgotten in the calms. Well, there is no storm here. These people are not in the midst of storm, they're in the midst of blessing and they're saying, look, uh, we want to put a marker in the sand and say, Lord, from this point on, we want to consecrate our lives to you. Thirdly, notice their covenant renewal is made in the context of a decisive uh, separation. Again, verse 28. Uh, The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God. Nehemiah, the governor, Uh, the spiritual leaders, the priests, the Bible teachers, the Levites, the family leds, all of the people on this day were engaging in a very public bridge-burning act. Something of what uh, perhaps Paul had in mind when he wrote 2 Corinthians 6 and 17, therefore come out from among them And be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch the unclean thing. Now, Paul there is quoting from Isaiah 52 verse 11. A passage that was originally addressed to exiles who were living in Egypt. Who were poised to return from exile there. To put off any idolatry that they'd picked up in Egypt. So too, Paul was urging the Corinthians to distance themselves from the the idolatry and the sexual immorality that marked the polluted environment in Corinth. An act of separation that says to unbelieving neighbors, we are determined... To live distinctive lives that are regulated by the pure, fresh air of God's word. And, and not to be polluted by the godless environment around us. But what precisely does it mean uh, to live a separated life? Uh, this is something that confuses uh, many Christians today today. Well it's certainly not a call to monasticism to cut ourselves off from all physical contact with unbelieving men and women uh, a mindset that says let's preserve a holy huddle lest contact with uh, unbelievers contaminates us uh, you don't need to go to a monastery to uh, express that mindset It can be expressed in the context of a congregation such as this. Uh, You know, keep unbelievers at a distance. Years ago, I worked for, and it was years ago, I was a young man then, I worked for a large firm of Glasgow architects, and the the offices had a a kitchen and a lounge in the basement. I didn't use it. My lunchtimes were spent reading my Bible at my desk, And one lunchtime, a secretary entered the room and said, are you cutting yourself off from us? Do you think you're better than us? Oh dear, my unconscious pharisaic separation uh, took uh, a great blow. Uh, And thereafter, I ate with the rest of the staff down in the basement and had countless opportunities. To share with them the gospel. We can have a wrong idea of what this uh, separation uh, involves. Jesus taught, did he not? You're in the world, but not of the world. Living separated lives doesn't mean we shouldn't mix with non-Christians. Far from it. Uh, whether that be in the gym or the camera club or the sewing bee or the coffee shop, how can we win others to Christ if we are not mixing with them? The important thing is that we take Christ and his countercultural lifestyle with us, that we're able to give a reason for the hope that's within us. That's the point. So those are the general observations. Now we turn uh, to the covenant promises, uh, specific covenant promises that are made. Uh, God's people in uh, these uh, verses, uh, in verses uh, 30 following, they are not engaging in verbal gymnastics Uh, Remember, theirs had been a genuine repentance and a genuine inward spiritual work of God must produce a practical, external, observable response. You may remember that that emphasis had been central to John the Baptist's uh, ministry. Uh, he had a covenant renewal ministry, you will remember. And when the Pharisees came to observe the cues of penitence uh, lining up to be baptized as they expressed their, uh, uh, their need of forgiveness, uh, John the Baptist's words uh, to these religious leaders, uh, words of challenge had been, produce fruit in keeping with with repentance. I don't want just to hear words. I'm looking for for fruit. Uh, Let me digress just a little, although I hope you will see the relevance and connection, by sharing with you Arash's story. He was a, a young gang lord in Iran who controlled his community through violence. He seized the properties of five uh, prominent families. They fled empty handed and terrified because everyone, everyone feared Arash. But he was converted, and soon he realized that having repented of his sin, his life had to change. Uh, There needed to be a new uh, lifestyle. Uh, He left his violent criminal past behind. He told his gang he was retiring. Uh, And after reading the story of Zacchaeus, God spoke to his heart. And the stolen properties had to be given back. And so he searched tirelessly until he found these five families And they were bewildered when he handed over the keys and said, you've got your property back. Oh, and by the way, I've maybe damaged some of your furniture and indeed I know I've sold some of it. So I've taken out a loan in order to compensate you for that loss. A genuine inward spiritual work of God produced a practical external observable response and that's seen here in the promises that God's people make in verses uh, 30 to the end of the chapter now the question I immediately want to ask is, why are four areas in particular singled out? Marriage, the Sabbath, uh, possessions and the poor, and the maintenance of God's house. They have already promised to observe the whole law of God. So they're not saying we will cherry pick and observe only these four areas of Mosaic law. They're not doing that. Why then select these four uh, areas? Let me suggest that what they're doing is they are identifying choke points. Areas of particular weakness that have contributed to their past disobedience. We just need to read uh, the books of Ezra, Haggai, or chapter 5, back in uh, Nehemiah, uh, which deals with uh, the the needs of the poor. Uh, They recognize that here are areas that we need to put a, a special guard upon because of past failure. And it's important for us as individuals and as a congregation to know where our choke points are. Our forefathers uh, used to speak of besetting sins And by that, they meant uh, areas of particular vulnerability. Areas where we most regularly collapse under Satan's attack. And that varies from individual to individual. For some, it may be gossip or greed or selfish ambition, lust or envy. The list is endless. But we should each of us recognize where our choke point is where our besetting sin is. For only by identifying areas of vulnerability in this way can we, with God's help, mount a guard against them. And so, God's people are saying, here are areas that we feel we need to make particular promises concerning now, the first choke point in verse 30 is marriage. And you may ask, why does it come at the top of the list? Uh, I want to suggest they may, they may well have traced their humiliating exile all the way back to Solomon. You'll remember, for the first half of his reign, uh, well, it was, it was Israel's golden age. She enjoyed political security, unprecedented wealth, unparalleled wisdom, and had real missionary impact. Then Solomon relaxed his covenant uh, obligations. Uh, He eased off, uh, not just a little, but a great deal. He married foreign wives in defiance to God's law. And when these wives brought their wedding trousseaus with them, they came with a variety of foreign idols. And idols need temples. And soon the nation began its helter-skelter slide into idolatry from which she never recovered until after the exile which purged her of her desire to serve other gods in the way they previously had. And so God's people is making a binding promise. They're saying, we want to distance ourselves from the great harm that can be done by introducing uh, foreign idolatrous elements into... Uh, the people of God. We promise we won't give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or take our daughters for our sons. Does this have contemporary application? Of course it does. Paul writes, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 6 and 14. Uh, what a vivid picture uh, that is. Try yoking an oxen with a Clydesdale horse. It doesn't work. Uh, the two are incompatible. What a disaster that produces! And yet, how many young Christians have I heard say, "But but I'll influence my non-Christian fiance for God." Now, attempting to bring. An unbelieving partner to faith is a bit like standing on top of a table and trying to pull them up to your level. What will most likely happen? Oh, the tabletop partner is pulled down for momentum and gravity is against them. And if you think, well, that could never happen in St. Pete's, then you're quite wrong. I've seen that happen Here. How then do we make the right choice of a marriage partner? Well, received wisdom uh, identifies uh, three areas of compatibility. First, uh, physical attraction. Wow, she's stunning, or he's incredible. I've never come across a newspaper advertisement that's read Wanted. A marriage partner that I'll find quite repelling. Doesn't happen, does it? There needs to be physical attraction. Secondly, shared interests. If you're intent on climbing a Monroe at every opportunity, then don't date a bookworm who wants to spend all of her free time reading a book. It stands the reason. Self-explanatory, isn't it? Thirdly, and most importantly, the area of spiritual compatibility. If you love Jesus and your partner doesn't, then your heart allegiance is going to be torn in two. You can't share what is of greatest importance to you with them. And they'll come to resent and even ridicule uh, your faith. And children from such a union become a battleground. Dad doesn't want the child to attend church, but mom does. Competing value systems. Mom says, do this, this, and this, and dad says, don't listen to her, do this, this, and that. And the child is caught up in that conflict. But even even having all three boxes ticked isn't Enough. Not if you believe in arranged marriages, and I do. Stunned silence. I mean marriages that are arranged by God. And if God intends us to marry, and of course that's not true of all of us, and we need to be sensitive to that. But if God intends us to marry, then he can be trusted to bring the right person into our lives. Uh, I would like the younger folks in the congregation to seek out older married couples and say, how did it work out for you? (laughs) Uh, How did God bring you together? I'm sure they would be delighted to explain just how that worked out for them. God can be trusted to do that. Second choke point deals with Sabbath observance or more particularly trading on the Sabbath. Verse 31, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, uh, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. Why not simply reaffirm their commitment to the fourth commandment? Because the erosion of the Sabbath, much more catastrophic than that uh, recent erosion of the the glacial walls in Alaska. Did you see them falling into the sea? Erosion. But much more drastic uh, than that uh, is this uh, business of breaking the Fourth commandment, through uh, selling on the Sabbath. God of commerce, profit, profit, profit. And when that happens, corporate worship ceases to elevate the hard God word, and there is a failure to rest from one's labor. It denies much-needed spiritual refreshment, does it not? Well, the Christian Sabbath uh, is now our Sunday, is it not? And to treat it like just any other day fails to reflect the fact that we are a separated people called upon to take a particular delight in God and in the fellowship of his people. And when this is not the case, then the signal that we're sending is that worship is an inconvenient ritual to be concluded as quickly as possible so that we can engage in whatever we consider to be more important and more profitable. God's holy day becomes God's half day and God's half day then is downgraded to thought for a day and then there's nothing. Uh, I wonder if you know that after the Russian Revolution, there was a bid to frustrate Sunday worship. Uh, The seven-day week was abandoned in a bid to secure greater productivity for the Soviet state. And a variety of options were experimented with for the next uh, 20 years, including a 10-day week. Uh, But a whole variety of options. But in 1940, they were obliged to revert to the seven-day week, with the seventh day being a day of rest. God knows best, actually, doesn't He? God knows best. And His commands aren't grievous for our good. Uh, Third choke point is reflected in their promise uh, not to work their land every seventh year. Verse 31b. Now, lying at the heart of this legislation lay the understanding that the land belonged to the Lord, He was landlord they were merely tenants. Now accepting this required faith. The ability to trust in God's promised provision. What was that promised provision? Leviticus 25 and verse 20. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we don't plant or harvest our crops? I'll tell you such a blessing. I'll send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three while you plant during the eighth year you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in wow enough for three years and of course the question is can we really trust God to provide in that way That is an issue that was addressed, you will remember, by our Lord Jesus. Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Your heavenly Father knows. He knows what you need. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Only once we gain that perspective can we say with assurance, the Lord will provide. He really, really will. And so we hold our material possessions in an open hand and we say my home is god's home my car is god's car all that i have belongs to god it's a trust from him uh, interestingly appended to the promise of the fallow seventh year is the promise to cancel all debts in verse 31 No. Uh, The interesting thing here is that that is not a part of the original Mosaic legislation. It's an add-on. It's an add-on. Why? Did they think if in the seventh year things get tight, we can revert to our fallback position and we can call in the debts? Trusting in God to provide becomes less necessary if you have got a drawer full of promissory notes and things are getting difficult and so you pull them out and you say, oh, he owes me such and such, he owes me such and such. Now they've already been challenged, as we've pointed out in chapter five, over their attitude to the poor. And so what they're saying here is, we're actually going to tear up those promissory notes. We don't, have, want, we don't want to find ourselves in a position uh, where we say, well, if God doesn't provide, then here's the backup plan. We want to trust exclusively in God Himself. By showing this concern to protect the most vulnerable in society, they were really going beyond what the law required. Isn't that amazing? Uh, heart shift of devotion is what we see here. Determination to trust in God. Final area is uh, their obligation concerning the house of God. And that includes the redemption of both firstborn family members and livestock, which involve the payment of a price for the former and the surrender of the latter. Now, they also promised the payment of temple tax, wood, and tithes to support the temple services. Remember, they were determined, verse 39, not to neglect the house of God. They'd done that in the past. We know that. They'd done that in the past. Haggai uh, had pointed out uh, that home DIY had displaced the construction and upkeep of the temple. And it cost a great deal to support Uh, temple rituals but now and this sums up all that is being said here they are determined to embrace a view that says uh, God comes first God will always come first not even our precious children will be ours Uh, we're holding them In trust for God. Now that's a great challenge, isn't it? And it continues to be one for Christian parents, particularly when God calls them to serve him overseas. In John Paton's biography, we read of the tears shed by his father at Greenock Dock before his ship sailed for the New Hebrides. His father sorrowfully yet gladly let his son go, knowing he might never see him again this side of glory. It costs parents to support the work of God in this way my children are not my own they're a trust from you think of what it cost Hannah, Samuel's mother who fulfilled her vow to God a different vow of course sending him into the temple service to work along Eli's desolate sons he's God he's promised to God now in these four areas, we see the, the practical, observable response of God's people who make it clear they weren't merely the, the signatories of a paper promise, but determined to respond to uh, the grace of the new beginning that God had given them. Their solemn commitment to God was total and deep-seated, not partial and superficial. Bear in mind, and this is important, it's so important because it applies to us today, that it was their experience and conscious awareness of God's grace that provoked and motivated them to this glad obedience. God's grace bowled them over. They were overwhelmed by that. Encouraged to stand up and bless the Lord as they reviewed God's grace, mercy, and kindness towards them as individuals and as a nation. And they do so in covenant obedience. I wonder this evening Do you struggle with free and glad obedience? There are things that God requires of us that we really, really struggle with. How do we do this? Perhaps uh, we need to ask God to open our eyes. This was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, was it not? This is the most practical prayer that can be prayed for the church. Uh, Open our eyes. Illuminate their minds. Help them to see uh, what you have done for them in Christ Jesus. In the gospel. The father who planned. The spirit who came to effect the plan. Sorry, the son who came to effect the plan. The spirit who came to apply that to our lives. Only as our eyes are open to the enormity of God's grace, will we begin to discover that his commands are not grievous? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pause in your presence to thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Forgive us that we do not take enough time to ponder the enormity of the riches of your grace, the great cost to you of our salvation. Help us this evening to say, uh, with another of bygone years, if... Jesus Christ to be God and died for me is any sacrifice too great for me to make for him. Amen.